A few years ago, I wrote a book called Jesus is Involved in Politics. Why aren't you? Why isn't your church? Very, very scary book. Very controversial. And I decided I needed to rename it to something kinder and gentler. So I renamed it 40 Days Towards a More Godly Nation. You know, the 40 days, everybody's into 40 days. Who wouldn't be into 40 days, you know? Uh, but it's the same basic content. Uh, by the way, all the sermon notes and everything, you can purchase them in the back. Uh, in fact, you can teach all this material yourself, and I'm hoping that some of you will choose to do it. Um, and this has a CD, has the sermons and everything, if you're interested. Also, if you're interested in, uh, in being on my email list, I probably send you one email a year. There's a little uh, tablet here, if you could uh, fill out your name. If, you, uh, if it doesn't look like this, Look for a little icon like this, double-click it, and you'll get back to that. So uh, I want to start out by saying something that may be a shock to some of you. Um, I've realized that you have no constitutional rights. Let me say that again. You have no constitutional rights. I, I don't mean that somebody took them away from you. I mean you never had them. Let me explain how I got there by giving you some of my background first. I was born in Ghana. Some of you are thinking that's a town in Texas. It's actually a uh, country off the west coast of Africa. And as my daughter, I, I said this once, and my daughter just thought it was the most hilarious thing. I said, I was born at a very young age in Ghana. Um, my parents were Christian Indians, and uh, my ancestors actually date back to St. Thomas, who came to India in 51 A.D., and converted a number of pagans. There are about 70 pagan families, and they became Christians. So we've been Christians a long time. I always tell the story of when I uh, first met my father-in-law, who is British, Irish, something, and he was all very interested about how Indians could, I mean, Indians? I thought Indians were all Hindus. and Very interested about it. He says, so how long have your family, has your family been Indian? I mean, has been Christians? And, and I said, oh, a lot longer than yours. <laughs> Right, because the British only became Christian in like 12th century or something like that. Anyway, so I, I was born in Ghana, but then I grew up in Jamaica, Ethiopia, India, Yemen, and Sudan. And yes, yes, Sudan is a town in Texas. I agree. Uh, there it is, right off Highway 87, turn right at the Burger King. Welcome to Sudan, Texas, right there. Uh, that's not the Sudan I'm talking about. The Sudan I'm talking about is a country right below Egypt on the east coast of Africa where they speak Arabic. It's the part with both the Niles, the Blue Nile and the White Nile join, and we lived about four blocks from the Nile. So when I tell you I can be honest about this, I did grow up in denial. And... Um, <laughs> I also spoke a lot of Arabic there. I was going I street Arabic, not enough to like get, um, not enough to 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 study in, but I, I spoke street Arabic. And uh, but once I got here, I forgot all of it after I started watching Star Trek in English. It was the downfall of my uh, my Arabic speaking. Uh, all my friends were Muslim. Uh, now, what's interesting is you might wonder why. Well, how come you travel so much? Were well, you an international spy or a terrorist? If you think about it, Yemen is a terrorist country. Sudan's a terrorist country. You know, next we'll know Ghana's. No, never mind. Anyway. Um, but my dad was actually a professor in physics, and he would travel at all these universities, and he would work for these uh, different universities, and we got to travel and see all these things. And I, I tell you this to introduce my first attempt to come to America. I was uh, 18 years old. My dad was a professor of physics at the University of Sana'a. Sana'a is a uh, dictatorship, or used to be a dictatorship at that time. Uh, I'm sorry, Yemen is a dictatorship, and it had Sharia law, so it was a Muslim dictatorship. So if you want to know what it's like to... Uh, Living in Sharia law, let me know. Women wore the barkas, and, and I was 18 years old, and I was 18 years old, and I was looking around, and I said, somewhere in the world, there has to be more to women than this. <laughs> and I said, America. <laughs> America. I want to come to America. <laughs> because the movies had all these gorgeous women in them. I go, I want to go to America. And I said, I got to find those gorgeous women. And I did. I found the most gorgeous woman, and I married her. And there she is. In fact, we just celebrated on Thursday. We celebrated our 15-year anniversary. So thank you. Now, those are not our kids. Those are her bridesmaids. She was, she's a public school teacher. And uh, what's very interesting, she, we homeschool. She'll go back to being a public school teacher when the kids are done, right? Because we need Christians in school. But 
at the soldier level, not at the pawn level. Anyway, never mind. Okay. Never mind. I just, I just alienated half the crowd here, didn't I? Anyway, okay. Uh, but anyway, so, so my, our kids, our kids, there are kids, the two girls, and uh, there's our son. He just joined us in January, so he's nine months old. And there are the three, uh, there's my wife, my gorgeous wife, and my son. And my son is very active in the pro-life movement. <laughs> there he is at a Planned Parenthood boycott just a few uh, months ago, and with his Throwback Thursday t-shirt. Do you see that? But anyway, I got distracted with my beautiful family. But anyway, uh, uh, a professor's pay in Yemen, however, I wanted to come to America, a professor's pay in Yemen was not enough to pay for school and college in America, and it's even less so now. But my dad looked at their, my dad and mom looked at their finances, and they said, look, we can send you there for a couple of years, and, um, but it all depends on us being able to continue working here and getting the same level of income, and then we'll dig into our savings, and we might be able to... Make it, make it through. So this is my first attempt to come, and I was really excited. I go, wow, get to see all those beautiful women, go to America. So I got, a, I got admission to a college in eastern Oregon, and I got my visa, and we're already, we even had the tickets. And then two months before uh, I was supposed to leave for the U.S., my dad comes in from work, and he sits us all down, and he says that he's been fired. His contract with the government of Yemen had been terminated, and you see, we found out that a fellow professor had committed suicide. And when they went into his bedroom, they found a Bible on his nightstand with my father's name on it. Very ironic, my dad used to be a communist atheist before he became a Christian when I was about five. But my dad was now fired. Now, he said, look, uh, it turns out a lot of his students had graduated and were now in political positions. And they said, look, we can save your life, but we can't save your job. So he was saved from going to prison, but we had to leave the country. And my dad, a well-known professor, was, to- was telling me that because, in effect, because a fellow worker had a Bible from him, we had to leave the country. And my dreams of being able to afford to come to America were shattered. Why? Because, you see, it is illegal to give someone who is not a Christian a Bible in Yemen. You see, in Islamic countries, you don't have the right to give somebody a Bible. You don't have inalienable rights. You don't have the right to talk to others about religion or politics. Both are forbidden. You certainly don't have the right to give a Muslim a Bible. So but the question is, where do rights come from? In Yemen, the government grants you those rights, and giving a Bible to a Muslim is not one of the rights they grant you. Unless you think that would never happen in America, which I thought it would never happen, in Philadelphia, a 90-year-old, sorry, a 70-year-old African-American great-grandmother was arrested for ethnic intimidation when she and 10 other Christians were thrown into jail for having the audacity to stand on the side of a sidewalk during a gay pride parade and preach the gospel. They were threatened with $90,000 in fines and 47 years in prison. Is this America? Is this free speech? In a past in Arizona, was sentenced to jail for 10 days and three years of probation because a judge forbade his church bells to chime, except for two minutes on a Sunday. Now, it's important to notice that the church bells were lower in volume than an ice cream truck, which is allowed to chime anytime, anywhere in the city of Phoenix. And not to be outdone, the town of Gilbert, Arizona, decided to outlaw Bible studies in homes. If you go to the website religioushostility.org, you will see hundreds of these, over 600 listings of hostilities against Christians and pastors in the United States. But I don't need to show you this because you've seen this in the news. So two questions. What rights are we talking about? And do our rights come from government? So here's the question. Do our rights come from government? This is the interactive portion of the talk. Do our rights come from government? No, they don't come from government. So let me ask you this. What are some of the dangers if our rights came from government? They could take them away, right? So if our rights came from government, then government could what? Legally, ethically, morally, and justly take away those same, self-same rights that they've so graciously given to us out of, out of the largesse of their kind hearts. And then they could take it away, like they took it away from the Jews in Nazi Germany. So it's immediately dangerous that rights could come from government. So, can rights come from myself? Can I say, I have the right to be emperor? 
you must all bow before me. Do I have the right to do that? No, it's stupid. But if I don't have the right to make myself emperor, right, do I have the right to tell you what to do? If I can't tell you to treat me as an emperor, can I even tell you to treat me equally? What right do I have to tell you to treat him equally? What right do I have to tell you to treat me equally? I have no right to tell you what to do. I have no authority over you. So rights can't come from me. Well, what about the masses? Can rights come from the masses? Can we vote to give people rights? And this is what most people who disagree with me think. They think, oh, rights come from the masses. It's a democracy or a mobocracy, as our founding fathers called it. (laughs) Right? We'll all get together and we'll vote. Well, then the Nazis voted not to let the Jews have rights. Is that right? No. Rights can't come from the masses. In fact, here's the thing. If anybody says, well, rights come from the masses, you say, well, you know what? Before the 1800s, No culture, no country, no ethnic group thought that slavery was wrong as long as they were not the slaves. And if rights come from the masses, did that mean that the slaves never had those rights? That they didn't deserve those rights? That the rights didn't belong to them? Or did they they get those rights only because of some nice white people who, out of the largesse of their hearts, decided, oh yeah, we'll give you some rights? Or was it a fact that those slaves always had those rights, right? But these rights were constantly being violated, and it wasn't until the majority and the state recognized those pre-existing rights that justice was restored. So masses can't give you rights. Well, the rights, do our rights come from the Constitution? No. The rights don't come from our Constitution. What does the Constitution? The Constitution only explains where our rights come from. They don't give us any rights. You don't have constitutional rights. You never had them. You always had rights from the only one authority that has the authority to give you a commandment that says, treat other people equally. And who has the authority to tell every single person, king, Slave, free man, whatever, that they, everybody should be treated equally. Who has that authority? Only the creator of mankind. God. And what is the Declaration of Independence? The Declaration of Independence says quite simply what? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their constitution. No. That they're endowed by the masses, by their government. No, by what? The creator with certain unalienable rights that amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See that? You don't have constitutional rights. You have God-given rights. And why is this important? Because some people want to get rid of the Constitution. Some people want to change the Constitution. It doesn't matter what you do to the Constitution. We have rights because God gave us those rights. Now, there's a tendency to think that Thomas Jefferson, who wrote this, was a genius because he came up with this idea. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a genius. But he didn't come up with this idea. You see why? Because 200 years before Thomas Jefferson put those words into writing on the Declaration of Independence, pastors, preachers, and pulpits just like this all over the United States, all over England, and even in, in other parts of Europe were preaching that rights came from God and nobody else. In fact, go back to 1200 uh, AD, the signing of the Magna Carta, right? Drafted by Archbishop Stephen Langton. And he said, rights don't come from the king. Okay, so rights come from where? God, from the creator. Now this means something, though. If you take away the creator, what happens to your rights? No creator, no unable rights. And this is important because the minute you start separating the creator from your laws, from your constitution, from your country, you lose rights. And it's immoral. Now here's another thing that's very important. This creator, this creator here has to be the creator that assigns rights because the Muslim creator does not give you rights. The Hindu creator does not give you rights. The Buddhist creator does not exist. They're atheists. The atheist creator, oh, there is no atheist creator, so he can't give you squat. The only creator that assigns rights and is logically, scientifically, philosophically provable is the Judeo-Christian God. By the way, I teach apologetics on the side. Okay, I really teach apologetics most of the time. Okay, 
Okay, I'm an engineer most of the time. I teach apologetics at night. Okay, so anyway, uh, it, there's a book out there that shows proving God exists without using the Bible. And it, it uses the science and all that to prove that. So basically, I can prove that God exists. This God exists. Judeo-Christian God exists. Now, here's the problem, though. If, if there is a God, and it is a Judeo-Christian God, then why do I need a government? I mean, the government doesn't give me any rights. Why do I need a government? Most of you know this. Let's re- go back to the Declaration of Independence. What? That to secure these rights that God has given you, governments are instituted among men. The only purpose of government is to protect your rights. Nothing else, by the way. Right? They're not supposed to do anything else according to the Constitution. They're only supposed to secure your rights that we already have. And if you start looking at all this, you realize something. One, you can't separate religion from politics. Because religion tells you about God. God gives you rights. Rights have to do with morality. Politics, what? Has to do with lawmaking. And rights equal morality. You can't separate lawmaking from morality, so therefore the church has to be the conscience of government. Why? Because the government is dealing with moral issues. You take the church out of politics, everything falls apart. Everything. Now, now, don't get worried, though. If you're not a Christian here or you're a Christian who doesn't agree with me, don't get worried because I don't want a theocracy. Okay? I do not want a theocracy. Here's why I do not want a theocracy. In fact, most people don't want a theocracy. You don't want a theocracy, right? Because uh, Assembly of God people don't want a Baptist government. <laughs> Methodists don't want a Baptist government. Uh, um, Presbyterians don't want a Baptist government. For crying out loud, Baptists don't want a Baptist government. <laughs> They've been in those meetings. They go, oh, no, I don't want a Baptist government. We don't want a church government. We don't want a Christian government. We want Christians in government. See the difference? We don't want a church government. We want a moral government. And whom better to instruct the world on moral issues than pastors and Christians and people who understand God's word? Okay, I talked about rights, I talked about, I talked about the right to give somebody a Bible, but what are rights? I mean, you ask people what are rights, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they'll repeat what's in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Okay, but what are rights? Can you define rights to me? I said, okay, like, for is, is healthcare a right? Now, we say no, but if I talk to some other people, they'll go, yes, it is. Is, is a good job a right? Uh, you know, FDR thought you should have um, a good vacation as one of your rights, right? Uh, so let's play a little game. Let's see if we can differentiate the rights so that whenever you get into these discussions, you can tell the difference between what's a right and what's not a right, okay? So let's, let's look at this. I'm going to play a little game. If you've uh, heard this talk before, you can't play this game. <laughs> if you've read my book, you can't play this game. So we're going to play this little game, and uh, we're going to put the rights on the left. Okay, rights on the left and <laughs> something else on the right. I'm going to flash something up there, and you tell me if it's right or not, okay? And again, if you've played this game before, no cheating, no playing. Okay, is this a right? Uh, some say yes, some say no. I'm sorry, folks, this is a gun. <laughs> it's not a right. What is the right? To own that gun, right? You have, to own, you have the right to own that gun, but you're not entitled for the government to come and give you a gun. Get your own gun for crying out loud. <laughs> right? Earn your own money. Go buy your own gun. Somebody, go buy, pay the person who builds it. Oh, build your own gun. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's called an 80% lower. You don't even need to register it. <laughs> I, I see that. I hear that. Anyway, okay, we've gone off topic here. Okay, that's where I am. <laughs> Okay, so you have a right to own that gun, but you're not entitled to be given a gun. You have to get your own gun. Okay, so let's see. Is this a right? Yes, yes it is, right? But is this a right? A printing press. But you need a printing press to exercise your freedom of speech. But you're not entitled to be given a printing press. See, see the difference? Your, your, a printing press is not a right. But you need to purchase it. Uh, so if you want a website, 
Are you entitled to getting a, getting a free website, free hosting by the government? The government is horrible at hosting websites, by the way. <laughs> It'll cost you $2 million, and you won't work. And that's just for you. I mean, you talk about it. Anyway, never mind. Okay, here we go. Where are we? Okay, so, um, but, okay, so here, let's, I'm going to put up a list of things, and you tell me their rights or something else, okay? Now, there's still, still a few trick questions in here, okay? A home, home ownership, a job, healthcare, food, clothing, education. Are these rights or something else? Trick question. Somebody got the right answer. There is a right in there. Which one? Home ownership is a right. You have the right to own a home, but you're not entitled to be given a home. Go get your own home for crying out loud. Right? Well, what is the difference? How do I tell the difference? Well, let me put it into words for you, okay? Here's the difference. Rights are something that God gives you. Anything that requires building or making is what we call goods or services. Goods and services are the product of somebody's labor. FDR tried to create a second bill of rights. Remember, I said that in that bill, he wanted to include things like the right to good education, the right to health care, the right to your own house, the right to a good paying job, the right to adequate food, clothing, and recreation. And his opponent said, and the right to a chicken in every pot. Today, it'll be tofu in every pot, but never mind. Okay. Uh, but if you have your thinking hat on, you'll immediately realize that these are nice things, but they violate the very concept of God-given rights. Why? Because while you have the right not to be prevented from getting an education, you are not entitled to that education. Why? Because that education will be dependent on somebody else providing you the labor and the work to give you that education. How do you give everybody free education? Do you go out and enslave a bunch of teachers? Teach! Teach! Right? How do you give everybody free health care? Do you go and enslave a bunch of hospital workers and a bunch of equipment manufacturers? Make, make an MRI machine. Whack! You can't. So what you do instead is you enslave everybody partially and force them to pay for the things that you promised for free to other people. As soon as something becomes a product of somebody else's work, it becomes a good, not a right. You have a right to your own goods, your own services, the own fruit of your own labor, but not to anybody else's. Because that's what? Stealing. And this is critical. Anytime you vote on something or for someone, you just ask yourself, does this law assign goods as though they're rights? Or does this person I'm voting for assign goods as though they're rights? You see, the constitutions that have a bill of rights for education, jobs, and health care are all communist and socialist constitutions. And they've gone bankrupt. Why do they go bankrupt? It's quite simple. Because goods that are granted as rights require enough goods to be produced. So either you go bankrupt without enough goods or you become a totalitarian government like the communists and you force people to work. Or you start, what, parsing out the goods. I have a communist friend, ex-communist friend. He says, yeah, the communist government just decided who got the goods. And if they didn't like you, you didn't get the goods, and you starved. And Mao starved 40 million of his own people. Goods that are granted as rights require you to enslave men fiscally, that's financially or physically, to ensure a continuous supply of the goods that you've promised to others. Think about that. Sadly, most Christians, most Americans, don't know the difference. They think there's a scale. Oh, well, this is a good and this is a right. But no. They think this, this should be done by the government and this should be done by us. You know, they say, well, we need health care to live. Well, you also need food to live. Grocery stores should be taken over by the government then. You see, in communist countries, people wait for bread. In free market countries, bread waits for people. Now, by the way, these are all moral issues, aren't they? And ignoring these moral issues causes oppression and is unloving. But Christ often talked about taking care of the poor. I had a guy come on my Facebook page and he said, Well, Neil, Jesus said, Heal the sick, feed the poor. Jesus was a socialist. And you get people walking around the streets like this. Was Jesus a socialist? 
But he did say take care of the poor. So let's, let's look. I mean, because the idea is, look, Jesus said love your neighbor as yourself, right? So uh, shouldn't our government reflect that and take care of the poor too? Shouldn't we band together and take care of the poor through our government? Okay, well, let's talk about where we learned about taking care of the poor this, uh, and, the, and the weak and the, the sick. Uh, the, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Now, most of you have forgotten it. You'll see why I say that. You see, there was a Good Samaritan walking down the street, and he saw a guy that had been beat up by thieves. And just before him, two politicians had walked by and ignored the guy. Well, he, he goes to the guy, and he, and he takes care of him. He takes him to this inn. And he tells the innkeeper, dear Mr. Innkeeper, please take care of this man. And when I come back, I will pay for half of it, and you pay for the other half. No? He didn't say that? No. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He said, he said, when I come back, I'll pay for half of it, and I will bring some thugs to beat you up and extort the other half of it from you. Didn't do that? No. I know. He said, when I come back, I will come back with some IRS agents and they will hold a gun to your head and force you to pay for the other half of it. No, he didn't say that, right? What did he say? <laughs> thank you, thank you. I see <laughs> what did he say? He said, I will pay for it. He didn't say, I'll go around and force the neighbors to pay for it. See, Jesus said, what you give to the poor, not force your neighbor to. Jesus said, you take the shirt off your back not take it from your neighbor's back. If you think about it, socialism is nothing more than forcing your neighbor to give to your favorite charity at the point of an IRS agent's gun. Loving our neighbors does not include forcing them to pay for the poor or sick. Jesus was saying it's not the state's job to take care of the poor. Whose job is it? It's the church's job. It's our job. And the church has done exactly that for over 2,000 years. In fact, if you look at Florence Nightingale, right? Florence Nightingale uh, pioneered nursing. She believed that God had had called her to take care of the sick. I grew up in Africa. We went to missionary hospitals and public hospitals. We had state-funded health care in Yemen. And I tell you, the, the cleaner hospital was the missionary hospital. The nicer hospital was the missionary hospital. In fact, what's interesting about the, uh, the state hospital is we would go and stand in line, and there'd be like 100 people ahead of us. But we would get to go up front because the doctors were all Indians. You see, in state-funded education, the special people get special privileges. Guess what? If we have state-funded every, anything here, you're not special! So I always liked that. In fact, I was, so one day I was on a show, I was on a, on a talk show, uh, somewhere in, in uh, Washington, D.C., I was on the phone. The guy invites me on. He's a liberal, and he invites me on to, to talk about my book. I'm on for the first 20 minutes. After the first 20 minutes, he says, wow, I'm getting a lot of calls. Can you stay on for another 20 minutes? I said, sure, I'm, I'm happy. So I stay on for another 20 minutes. After that, he goes, Can I, do you want to stay on for another 20 minutes? I say, another 20 minutes. I end up being there for all three hours of the show, right? <laughs> now, and all his other callers, he, I guess, all the other guests, he, I guess he bumped them. But, um, so... But the problem was it was a liberal station. So for the first two hours, I'm getting all these liberal people calling in and beating up on me. Beat up on Neil, beat up on Neil, right? And then what's funny, though, is that <laughs> after the second hour, somebody, I guess the word goes out, says, hey, there's a conservative on this station. Uh, so the conservative should call in. And so, I, I, so this last hour, the conservative started calling up and beating up on him. And I was like, yeah, 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 that's right. What he said. Yeah, what he said, you know? <laughs> But halfway through the beat up on Neil portion, right, I'm talking about this, and I talk about the church taking care of the poor. I said I grew up in Africa, and, and the, the missionary hospitals were far better. And this lady calls up, and she says, you're crazy. I'm like, what? She says, yeah, yeah, maybe in Africa the hospitals are better if they're run by the church. But this is 2011. That was the year it was. This is 2011. I just went to my hospital, and they had the latest MRI equipment. They had the latest this equipment. They had all that. You tell me, you're telling me your church can do that? I said, ma'am, just, just a second. Can I ask you a question? She goes, what? <laughs> I said, I just want to know the name of your hospital. <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> I said, ma'am, can you tell me the name of your hospital? No answer. The host starts laughing because he knows where this is going, just like you. <laughs> he says, ma'am, can, please tell us the name of your hospital. And she goes, St. Jude's, but that's not important. <laughs> Do 
I said, ma'am, you know, Christian hospitals all over the world are the most advanced. Now, yes, that hospital may now be secularized, but it was started by Christians. It's probably run by a Christian board still, and there's some missionary board behind it, some church board behind it. We can't do this. We have been doing this for the last 2,000 years, and we can do it again. And here's the important thing. If a, if a Christian organization is not using your money correctly, you can stop giving to them. A few people tried that with the IRS. It didn't really go well. <laughs> Christian organizations want you to get better. Turns out that a study done by this university found that... Uh, For every year a child is on welfare, they are mentally retarded by a certain percentage. That doesn't happen if the church is involved, because the church cares for the whole person. Here's the other thing. What we don't understand is is giving to the government instead of a local charity is unloving. Because the government uses... Well, let me give you an example. This is a ministry in our city of San Jose. I live in San Jose, Silicon Valley. I'm an engineer. I wear a badge. It let me, lets me into the office. Um, so they put out this thing, and it said it costs a city between 40000 to 60000 Actually, the number is 68000 if you go to the website, to care for a homeless person. It costs city team 12000 And what's different about that is that, and I, I made friends with the, uh, the director of city team, who's a good friend of mine now, and he said, well, here's the difference that is not on the ad. After we spend the $12,000, that person is off the streets. After the city spends its $68,000, they've got to spend it again next year and the next year and the next year. Just on the basis of a cost loan, we're at least five to six times more efficient. So it's actually unloving to let the government continue to be in the business of charity when we could help two to five times the number of needy people with the same amount of money. Now, I agree we can't get there overnight. If we start giving the government that, she wants to take a picture. Here, I'll go back to that. Go ahead. <laughs> And I agree that if we start doing that, though, right away, what will happen is that we will have people dying in the streets. Why? Because the church has to step up before that happens. And Rob talked about that. By the way, you have a great pastor, you know. If I lived down here, I would, I would come here. But it takes me four hours either way to go to church. So. That's even if I fly, which is sad. Anyway, um, So the church has to take back its role. Now, what's interesting about this is if you think about the whole expenses for the poor people, how do we take care of the poor? Well, we spend about $1.2 trillion to take care of welfare and health care for the poor and and all that stuff. $1.2 trillion. Now, if the church really is more efficient, we could probably do that with about $300 billion. Replace that one point. That's half the federal deficit, uh, half the federal budget, rather, by the way. We could replace that with with, with $300 billion. So if you think, well, $300 billion, wow, that's so much money. How could we ever raise that amongst the churches? Well, that's because we're already doing that. You see, every year, Americans give over $300 billion a year to charity. By the way, don't let anyone say America's mean-spirited because that is nine times more adjusted for GDP than the next closest is the Germans and 11 times more than the next closest is the Italians, both really loving socialist countries. So we only have to double our giving to get rid of the entire half the federal budget and let the government get out of it. So last year, I traveled the state of Kansas with uh, Governor Sam Brownback. He won by 3%. I think I was the 3% he won. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I like to think that. We went to about six cities, talked to a bunch of people, got a whole bunch of small groups going to spread the word. Um, and and I, so, I, so when I met with the legislators, the Kansas legislators, the, the Republicans who are Christians, I said, look, guys, why about, what about giving a two-times deduction for every dollar you give to a charity that takes care of the poor? I, I don't mean if you give to a church, but I mean to give to a charity that takes care of the poor, like City Team or something. And, and that way, that $2 will do $12 worth of work for you that it will save the, city, the, the county or the state $12. And so you give... You know, you give the person a twice the deduction. Oh, sorry, so they give one dollar, it saves them six, six, six dollars, and you give them two times the deduction, so you only lose another thirty cents. It's a great deal for the city, for the for the state, and so they said they'll think about it. I don't know. I don't think they'll ever have enough votes. Of course, it's only for the for the state budget. But anyway, here's what's happening too. When I talk to pastors about socialism and and taking care of the poor and all that, I say, look, guys, if you don't get involved in politics, your job is going to be lost. 
Why? Because socialism hurts evangelization. Socialism limits the gospel to spread the, limits the opportunity to spread the gospel because it takes away something that is the role of the church and makes it the role of government. Look at the socialist countries in the world. Nobody goes to church there. Pastors, you know, if you, if you want your job to be safe, better get involved in giving to the poor and getting the government out of it. Because in socialist countries, they don't need the church. And think about it this way. Every time the government meets someone's physical needs, the church has lost an opportunity to witness and show Christ's love to that person. We have a moral obligation to prevent the government from getting involved. And here's the other thing that really clinches this. Regardless of what you do, the only thing that takes people out of poverty is capitalism. Bono, who was a singer for U2, one of the biggest bands in, in the history of rock and roll, um, has traveled around the world trying to get countries to give more money to the poor, right, or give, forgive debts and lot. And he finally read this book by this guy named George Atiyeh, and he realized that capitalism takes more people out of poverty than aid. And that's exactly what the Bible's been saying. Because if you go back to the gleaning, right, they had to work for a living. And here's the other thing. If you look at the last 60 years or uh, 35 years of, of um, progress, you see that the poverty rate has not changed despite the trillions of dollars we're putting into it. It's not working, folks. How unloving can we be to continue doing what doesn't work? So how do we change this? Well, let me ask you this. What is the job of politicians? <laughs> I've heard all the answers. <laughs> to enforce our laws. Actually, that's the job of the executive power. But what about politicians? Their job is to make the laws, right? They're supposed to make the laws. Well, let me ask you, why do we have laws? I mean, you walk out of here and you see a stop sign. You drive out of here and you see a stop sign. Is a stop sign there because the city fathers did not want you to have fun in your brand new car? <laughs> why is that stop sign there? Because they don't want you to kill anyone, Right? And so they put the soft sign there to protect you. So the laws are there to protect you. They're to protect us from our stupidity or other people's stupidities. Right? Or to guide us, to give us a guidance, to give us a guardrail. So why did God give us the laws? Same reason, right? And if you think about it, there are no laws that in the Old Testament or the New Testament that, aren't, that are for God's purpose. God isn't going, oh, don't use my name in vain. Oh, no, you did. Oh, no. You know, he's not doing that. Why? Because when you use his name in vain, you suffer the consequences of that, that rebellion in your heart. In the same way, the other laws that are like, like adultery and stealing and all that, and the more we follow God's laws, the happier, healthier, safer, mutually prosperous we'll be, right? Now, here's the question. If I follow God's law, I'll be happy and prosperous. If my nation follows God's laws, will my nation be happy and prosperous? Yes. And my nation, if I violate God's laws, will I suffer the consequences? And those around me, right? If our nation violates God's laws, will our nation suffer the consequences? Yes. As a Christian, do you have a moral obligation to make sure that our nation's laws and God's laws match? Even if you're imposing it on a bunch of atheists. Because if you believe in God's laws, then you believe that atheists will be better served with godly laws than ungodly laws. And we've seen that over and over again, and I will show you one in just a second. What happens when a nation violates God's laws? God's moral laws. And I'm going to talk about divorce and family. And as I do this, I want to say up front, I'm not here to judge you. If you've had a divorce, I'm not here to stand in judgment against your situation or to call condemnation upon you. We're all sinners, and we live in a world that has corruption, and sometimes you have to make bad choices. You have two bad choices, and you picked one. The Bible does allow for divorce in certain reasons. Prior to 1969, the law of America was you could have a divorce for biblical reasons. 1969, a man I admire greatly made a big mistake. His name was Ronald Reagan. He did not veto a law in California called no-fault divorce. He allowed no-fault divorce to be in California. That means now, before you could only get married, a divorce for biblical reasons, now you could get divorced for any reason or no reason at all. As a result of that, that spread across the nation. And now, about, <clears throat> what, 40 years later, we can look at the consequences of God's laws. God said, I hate divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Let's see why. 
Since then, children from broken homes, that's single-family homes and divorced homes, account for 29% of all kids. Yet they account for 70% of all long-term prison inmates, 60% of rapists, 75% of teens charged with murder, 70% of violent criminals, 80% of those motivated by displaced anger, and 75% of all juvenile criminals who are a threat to the public. They're also 40 times more likely to experience child abuse. If you come from a broken or single-parent family home, you're three times more likely to fail in school, three times more likely to require psychiatric treatment, three times more likely to commit suicide, twice as likely to end up in jail, and twice as likely to be a juvenile delinquent, and twice as likely to continue by being a pregnant teen. In fact, if you look at the statistics, people in broken homes are a higher level of poverty. In fact, 80% of all kids would be out of poverty if they, their parents had been married or stayed married. And it's a self-spiring cycle because children from divorced homes are twice as likely to divorce an adult. Now look at all these financial fiscal issues, right? Crime, suicide, vandalism, welfare, murder, drugs, gangs, psychological problems, educational problems. Is this a fiscal problem or is this a moral problem? All stems down to one bad law and subsequent laws after that. Do you think as a Christian you can really sit by the sidelines and say, I don't care about those kids? But do you think as a Christian you have a moral duty to make sure the laws of your land follow the laws of God? How can we be so unloving to not to care what other people do? The church's task is not simply to bind the wounds of the victim beneath the wheel, but also to break the wheel itself. Are we going to stand around and just take care of the divorced kids? Or are we going to go back to the root of the problem and try to fix the problem? Are we going to try and change the laws? Now, remember when I said politics is about making laws? Laws are based on moral values. A bad law can decimate society and hurt millions and kill millions. This is a moral issue. Now, some of you will come up and say, but Neil, you can't legislate morality. Okay? Let's think about it. I had a friend come up to me. I, we were actually in a, <clears throat> we were at lunch one day eating Thai food. He has a PhD in, uh, from Stanford University. And uh, we'd done a bunch of patents together. And I was showing him this. I do this talk on how to argue against abortion without using the Bible. It's on my website. You guys can go. To, it's a 40-page thing on all the arguments I've heard over the years. And it's got lots of stuff in there. You're, just go on our noblindfaith.com and, and download it if you ever want to argue against abortion without using the Bible. So I, I went through the whole thing, and at the end of it, he says, okay, okay, well, maybe you're right, Neil. Maybe abortion is murder. But we can't legislate morality. And I almost spat out the rice in my I go, I said, what? And then I said, did you come up with this, or did you hear somebody and you're just repeating it? And he gives me this, he gives me this dirty look. I said, okay, okay, let, uh, here, let's do this. You give me one law that's not based on a moral value. So he's thinking, thinking, thinking. I get bored. <laughs> I decide to help him. I say, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, you know, I didn't think about it, but the law against killing, that's not a moral value. He looks at me like, nah, of course it's a moral value. You know, that's not kill. That's a moral value. What do you mean it's not a moral value? I say, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so I give him a bit more time. Still hasn't come up with this. Says, oh, oh, yeah, that's, how about this? The law against stealing, that's not a moral value. That's not based on it. He goes, Come on. He says, you're not helping. So I wait for a while. Finally, he does come up with something. He says, Mother's Day. <laughs> Mother's Day? I go, but come on, that's, that's one of the Ten Commandments, honoring your mother and father. He goes, yeah, but not the day. It could be any day. <laughs> I mean, that's not that point, is it? I said, look. All laws are based on moral values. They may not be yours. They may not be mine, but they're somebody's moral values. Right? You can't, we legislate moral values all the time and we impose it on others. And I asked myself, look, here's the deal. All laws are based on moral values. The question you should be asking is, whose moral values should we be basing our laws on? Yours, mine, Mother Teresa's, or Hitler's? And the answer is none of them. The answer is you go back to the Declaration of Independence and say, what? The laws of nature and nature's God. That's what we base our moral values on. Because you don't have the authority to create a moral value. Now, 
The problem, though, is after you say all this, somebody will say, well, you know, Neil, Jesus didn't get involved in politics. I was teaching this in a classroom of, of uh, college students, and a young girl put up her hands and says, well, Neil, that's all fine and good, but Jesus didn't get involved in politics, and if Jesus didn't do it, we shouldn't do it. And that's when I decided I have to write a book called Jesus Is Involved in Politics. Actually, back then I was called Jesus Was Involved in Politics, but after I got done half of it, I go, well, wait, he still is involved in politics. So I changed, I crossed it out. Anyway, so, so I said, okay, okay, well, well, wait a minute. Well, first of all, Jesus, uh, Jesus didn't fight against racism or slavery either. Does that mean I shouldn't? She goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I said, so if Jesus didn't do something, doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, right? But if he did do something, it means we should do it, probably. I said, well, did Jesus get involved in politics? And, and here's the problem. People go, well, you know, Jesus didn't get involved in the laws. He didn't try to change the law of, laws of Rome. He didn't run for Roman Senate or anything. And in fact, he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Well, well, here's the deal, though. People just don't understand the background. Jesus didn't get involved in uh, politics. is a statement that is false and misunderstanding of history. Now, let's understand what was happening back in Judea back then. The Romans had taken over Judea, right? And they were governing it. Just like when we took over Iraq, we were governing it, right? So did, when we took over Iraq, did we, did we run, write their laws? No, we didn't. It's too much work. You can't do it anyway, right? Were we their police force? No, they had their own police force. I mean, it's pretty lousy at times, but they were supposed to have their own police force. So that's what the Romans did. They took over Judea, and they let them have their own prisons. Remember, Paul and Silas were put in their Jewish prison. They had their own president, which would be Herod. They had their own army, right? In in fact, the people who killed the babies at Jesus' time were not the Romans. The Romans had nothing to do with it. It was Herod's army. It was probably Jewish mercenaries, or Jews, Jews or mercenaries who did the killing. So they had their own army. They, had their own, they also had their own senate. They made laws. They had their own constitution. What was the constitution of Israel? The Torah, the Old Testament, right? The first five books. Now, so they had a constitution, and they had a group of people that made their laws, but they couldn't legislate above the Constitution, they had to legislate below their Constitution, right? They couldn't violate the Torah, just like we're not supposed to violate our Constitution. Well, who are these people? Who are these lawmakers? Who are Jesus' senators? Who are these representatives? Well, they didn't get to vote for them. They were assigned to them, but they were still making the laws. It was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, sitting together, hence assemblies, the name given to the Council of 71 Jewish sages who constituted the Supreme Court and legislative body of ancient Israel. The makeup of the Council included a chief justice, a vice chief justice, and 69 general members who all sat in the form of a semicircle when in session. By the way, that semicircle is what we copied for our legislature. And I go, okay, so he had representatives. He had lawmakers. So if Jesus wanted to get involved in politics, who would he talk to? If he disagreed with the law, who would he yell at? Who, which senator would he write to? Well, I hope you're about 30 seconds ahead of me, because these guys were called what? The Pharisees and Sadducees. And now when you go back to the story of the Good Samaritan, remember I said, and two politicians walked by? These were the guys who wrote the law, and Jesus was talking to them all the time. He was saying, you filthy brood of vipers, you unwashed tombs, you dirty, rotten, stinking, who will save you from hell? (laughs) A friend of mine wrote a letter uh, saying, calling someone in the administration a bad name. And somebody wrote back and says, don't call our president these names. Jesus would never do that. So he sent it to me. I said, oh, can I answer? Yeah, please, please, please. <laughs> I said, well, Jesus had a president. His name was Herod, executive officer, commander of the army. And he uh, was asked about Herod one day, and he said, well, tell that fox that I will do what I want to do, and it's none of his business. And now you go, fox. Oh, foxes are sly and smart. And... But see, in the Middle East, foxes were vermin. They stole your chickens and ate them. They carried disease and they stunk and they were cowardly because when you showed up, they would run away. So what Jesus was really saying is, tell that filthy, lousy, thieving, stealing, stinking, disease-ridden rat that I will do what I want to do. And if he can do that, I can do that. Now, you go, but when he talked to the Pharisees, he was only talking about religious things. No, he wasn't. He was saying, you've forgotten about justice, mercy, 
and faithfulness. Well, justice is the law. Mercy is the law of punishments. And faithfulness, faithfulness or not, faithfulness to God? No, faithfulness to the law. Because right along the same time, he goes, you have forgotten the original intent of the law. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Go back to the original intent. This is what we call a strict contractualist. Jesus said, go back to the original intent of the Constitution, the Torah. And he was talking about issues of law and legality. He was involved in politics on a daily basis. In fact, you can't even witness to somebody. You can't even preach the gospel without quoting what he said to a Pharisee, Joseph of Pharisee, sorry, Nicodemus. He said, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, yet shall have eternal life. Now, of course, you say all this, and people say, well, well, Neil, that's fine and good, but every time Christians have gotten involved in politics, it has backfired and never worked. And then when they say this, you look at them, and you go, well, you have a very, okay, you shouldn't say that, but you have very restricted knowledge of history, don't you? Have you ever heard of this man? William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a British parliamentarian who thought that God said it was wrong for people to have slaves, and he spent 40 years fighting in British Parliament to free the slaves. What if, yeah, give him a hand. What if Wilberforce had said, you know what, I should not be talking about politics, I should not go involved and change the laws. If God wants to free the slaves, he will. I'm just going to preach the gospel to them. And you know what's even worse is that during that time when he was urging the pastors to get involved, Thomas Clarkson, who was really the hero behind this, was going through all the cities trying to get the pastors involved, and they would not let him preach. They said, no, no, no. What if a slave owner or somebody who owns an interest in a slave company were to come to church and I preach preach about freeing the slaves? They'll never come back again and never hear the gospel. Is this a good excuse? Wilberforce was the most hated man in England for a while. But if you think that's the only example I have, did you know that it was against the law to kidnap your wife and force her to marry you in Scandinavia? Well, why was it against the law? Because it used to be legal. You could go kidnap your wife, force her to marry you, and that was fine until a Christian went to a king and said, you know, this is a bad thing. We should change the law. And the, Christian, and the king said, why are you getting involved in politics, you Christian man? No, he didn't. He said, that's a good idea. We should change it, right? So, but that's just one of them. I mean, in fact, look at all these things that Christians have changed by getting involved in politics. Slavery, racism, segregation, kidnap rights, child labor, gladiatorial combat, death games, which is different from gladiatorial combat, by the way. Infanticide, because gladiatorial combat, you fought animals, okay? Infanticide, child marriage, temple prostitution, child sexual abuse, child prostitution, wise of property, fair treatment of prisoners, equality of mankind. In fact, even the Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty, the animals, right? Prevention of Cruelty, the animals started by William Wilberforce. We were there before PETA got involved. <laughs> and then they just went crazy. So anyone who says Christians shouldn't be involved in politics is saying all these things should still be legal. Is that really what you mean, pastor, or Christian, or whatever? I mean, is that really what you want? In fact, I would say even atheists should want Christians in politics. Why? Remember I said we should impose our laws on them? Because why? Because even atheists don't think slavery, child labor. Whoop. Nice. We'll be right back. (laughs) Come on. Yeah. Because even atheists don't think slavery, child labor, child management, bride kidnapping should be legal. They've just forgotten where those values came from. They've borrowed what we call moral capital. They've borrowed moral capital from us, from the Bible. Let me wrap up here. How many people love the book The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings? A few of you. Okay. I, was, I grew up with that. I loved it. Uh, Tolkien was a Christian. I uh, wrote the master of writing analogic stories. So they wrote The Lord of the Rings... Huge, three, it's a three-volume set, made three movies. And then they said, let's make The Hobbit. Well, The Hobbit is that small, right? You, can, you know, kids can read it in a couple of days. So they said, wow, wow, we made so much money in Lord of the Rings, we've got to make three episodes out of The Hobbit, right? So they made three of them. But where did they come up with the extra material from, right? So they made it up. And usually when Hollywood does something, I think it's stupid, right? I'm like, oh, come on, that's just lousy. It's not even accurate. Well, Peter Jackson actually did a good job with one of these scenes. I'm going to show you the scenes. I'm going to set it up for you if you don't know it. Um, so he created this out of, you know, he kind of wrote this on himself. Uh, it's not in the book. 
But it really hit home. In the movie that you're about to see, you're going to see a clip. The elves are the people. You're going to see two elves. And they are the beings that are destined for eternity. The um, Tolkien's essentially the Christians in, their, in, the, in the book. And they're destined. They're immortal beings. They live for thousands of years, and it's hard to kill them. Uh, they've lived forever in the woods, in these grand castles of stone. If you watch the movie, you see these beautiful, huge castles. And they're really protected. They're great warriors, right? And nobody dares cross them. But one day, the orcs, and the orcs are the evil people, the demon hordes, if you will, the evil spreading through the land. The orcs come in, and they're attacking a group of common folk. That would be the hobbits and the dwarves, okay? So they're the common folk. And they're attacking them, and the elf king says, not our battle. And so you're going to see a scene where two elves having a discussion. One elf has gone to fight with the common folk, to protect the common folk. And the other elf shows up, and this is what you see. You cannot hunt 30 orcs on your own. But I'm not on my own. You knew I would come. The king is angry, Talia. For 600 years, my father has protected you, favored you. You defied his orders. You betrayed his trust. Dangolonani. Negohenathan. Uohenathan. Kidad wenithan uohenathanim. The king has never let Orc filth from our lands. Yet he would let this Orc pack cross our borders and kill our prisoners. It is not our fight. It is our fight. It will not end here. With every victory, this evil will grow. If your father has his way, we will do nothing. We will hide within our walls, live our lives away from the light, and let darkness descend. Are we not part of this world? Tell me, Melon, when did we let evil become stronger than us? Church, when did we let evil become stronger than us? Will we hide in our churches? Let me encourage you as I close. <clears throat> this is a battle we can win. Turns out there are about 60 million evangelical Christians of voting age in America most of them who share our values. And this is not even counting our Catholic brothers and sisters. In most elections, we lose by about 9 million votes. Yet in most elections, only 20 million of those 60 million vote. 40 million do not vote. We can win this battle. It's ours to lose, and we are losing it now. We can just get 25% of those people who don't vote to vote on every election. We will win every election in every county, in every state, in every year, except in Berkeley, maybe. (laughs) And they can have Berkeley. Although that's going to change, because the number of Christian Chinese students in Berkeley has exploded. (laughs) So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you for a commitment. Before the end of this year, that's in the next two and a half months, I want you to find three Christians who do not vote and convince them, using these arguments, why they need morally to be involved, not only in voting, but in spreading the word, to vote for godly values. They have an obligation to allow us to preach the gospel. Remember, it's a lot easier to convince someone who agrees with you about God's laws to vote than to convince someone who totally disagrees with you about everything and does vote to vote for godly values. We spend billions of dollars. In fact, at the last election, they spent over a billion dollars trying to convince the uninvolved or the uninterested middle, the -the on-the-fence middle to vote. But they disagree with us. Why do we want them to vote when we've got 40 million people sitting? In fact, in the average church, not this one, if you sit down in a pew, the three people next to you are probably not voting or not interested, and they don't think they should be interested. So here's my promo here. In this book, I give you almost every argument I've given you today. Well, I give you every argument and a lot more. And it's designed as a study group, so you can do a small group study. You can lead a six-week Sunday school class or a book. There's a CD with all the slides and sermons and everything. Or you can just go through in the back as a study guide. Just invite people, have conversations, 
or start a small group. Hey, I got this book from this crazy Indian guy. And he, man, he's got some wild ideas, and he actually thinks he knows the Constitution better than most Americans. Imagine that. But let's go see what he says. You know, start the conversation, start talking to them, and then, and then get them into a small group and, and teach them this. If you will commit to getting three people, three people, it's my three-year-old. How old are you? Three. Three people, then we can change this. Look, it took me 12 long years to earn the right to become a U.S. citizen, as Rob mentioned. And I've lived as an engineer in Silicon Valley, but I traveled most of that time. I traveled to all countries doing presentations. And I've been, and I lived and grew up in Africa, Europe, and India. And let me tell you, this is the greatest nation in the world. It really is. There is no comparison. I mean, I've been to Europe, and, and it's nice, but you know, it's not America. But if we lose this battle, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those with the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Ladies and gentlemen, in Oregon last year, Baker was forced to close shop because he felt it was against the laws of nature, nature's God, to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. In some incidents, U.S. chaplains in the army are not allowed to mention the name of Jesus. Christian organizations like the American Family Association have been called terrorist organizations. Yeah, really? Do you know what a terrorist organization does? I know. I live in the Middle East. Now, yes, God is sovereign, okay? I agree he's sovereign. But remember, the children of Israel, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and many other nations, God held them all responsible for choosing their way into destruction. Will he do likewise for us? Why are we so special? And with our freedoms to evangelize being taken away from us, will, will America lose the ability to witness? If you only care about preaching the gospel, you have to care about the laws that allow you to preach the gospel. You see, I fear one day, like my father told me, I will have to turn to my daughter and say, honey, we have to leave this country because I gave a Bible to a non-Christian because it's illegal to give someone who's not a Christian a Bible in the United States of America. But just remember this. I escaped to come here. But if we lose freedom here, there is no place to run to. This is the last stand on earth. Thank you very much.